Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Ireland records its hottest day in 135 years. The UK Met Office issues its first ever red warning for extreme heat and fires rage across mainland Europe with no sign of slowing down. Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, says that failure to act would be detrimental. This has to be the decade of decisive climate action. That means trust, multilateralism and collaboration. We have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. It is in our hands. While the government here looks to sign off on emissions cut targets by the end of this month, the IFA says there's no need to go near the national herds. Ireland's response to the Ukrainian refugee crisis resorts to tents as 150 Ukrainians are due to arrive at Gormanston military camp in County Meath tomorrow. And later, a Fianna Fáil upheaval against Michal Martin. Do join the conversation on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. Tonight, with temperatures in Western Europe set to soar beyond 40 degrees Celsius this week, Southern Europe is already fighting the effects of more blistering summer heat, which scientists say is a result of the world's changing climate. Those apocalyptic scenes are being splashed on the front pages of newspapers around the continent. Here are just a few of them. A Croatian paper shows fires on the Adriatic coast with the headline, Hell. Newspapers in Spain describe an avalanche of fires out of control, while papers in Germany and Austria also show those wildfires prominently. Well, to discuss all of this and more, I'm joined in studio tonight by political reporter for the Irish Independent, Gabia Gattavisketia, Fine Gael Senator, Barry Ward, Social Democrats TD, Jennifer Whitmore, President of the Irish Farmers Association, Tim Cullinan, and Emeritus Professor John Sweeney of Maynooth University. But first, I would like to speak to Senior Climate Correspondent for Political Europe, Carl Matheson. You're very uh, welcome to the programme, Carl. You tweeted uh, earlier uh, today, the coming days in Europe are likely to be one of the continent's most extreme climate disasters. That's a pretty stark statement. Yeah, I mean, heat waves are one of or the most dangerous extreme form of extreme weather that uh, Europe faces. So uh, it's definitely within the bounds, I think, of the reality because also this is a, a climate-driven event. We know that the, the Met Office, the World Meteorological Organization, NASA, 
the scientists agree that heat waves across the world are being driven and made worse by climate change. So climate change is here. This is what we're, we're living with now and we're entering a more dangerous world. What are we seeing uh, across Europe in terms of, I suppose, the temperatures that some countries are experiencing, those record-breaking temperatures, and indeed the wildfires that are raging across France, Spain, Portugal? Yeah, um, I mean, today we've seen the, the kind of end of uh, a long heat wave in the Iberian Peninsula, um, ending up with uh, the pictures that you can see on your screen where I think it was a train stopped in Spain. Um, there's uh, There's been fires across Spain and Portugal and then really bad fires in France with thousands evacuated from villages and campsites, people on their summer holidays. Um, so it's been a, a terrible week in southern Europe um, and now that heat, that ball of heat is effectively being transferred up towards us in uh, the northern reaches of Europe and then it'll go out to eastern Europe. So it's a, the temperatures that we're seeing in, in the UK, for example, are are unprecedented almost and will be tomorrow uh, record-breaking. So uh, 100 local record uh, weather records fell in France today. Um, so we are really seeing something that is both unprecedented because of the maximums but also um, really important health-wise. The minimums at night are really, really severe and that's the, the difficulty with heat waves is they take such a toll on the body and people don't, I think, realise just how dangerous heat waves have always been but they're getting worse so they're becoming more dangerous. Um, they stress the body out and weaker bodies, older bodies, sick bodies and young bodies just wear out, and um, we've seen pro we've seen had more than a thousand deaths in um, Spain and Portugal in the last week. We're fully expecting to see hundreds, if not thousands, more um, across the, the coming days. You mentioned there homeowners being evacuated. We've heard of Irish holidaymakers having to be uh, evacuated. I know uh, governments are trying to sort of limit the, the death toll. What exactly are they doing to try and support people? There's loads of things that governments can be doing, and especially local governments, city councils. Um, France is particularly good at this because they had a nightmarish heat wave um, which killed tens of thousands in 2003, and that created a lot of public pressure to do something about it. And so while you can't mitigate against every everything, um, certainly you know local councils in France have thrown open the doors of uh, museums which are air-conditioned, local libraries, the, they've got all the pools opening longer, um, there's misters set up in public places. And um, I think crucially actually also what a lot of uh, local councils do in France is they have registers for people who, are, who they identify as vulnerable. And for the most vulnerable and particularly people who are on their own, the councils actually call up and uh, check in on them through the day. Uh, so I think those types of measures are really life-saving. Um, We'll see if that it, those sort of measures are are more exceptional in you know a country like France, for example, do it, but many other countries don't, because generally you feel the approach we take to a weather event like a heat wave is very different to the approach we take to other climate disasters. Yeah, this is a thing. I, I'm, I suppose if I was to tell you that we were looking at a heat wave, a hurricane approaching that was going to kill, you know, a thousand or a hundred people, we'd be battening down the hatches. Um, but with heat waves, I think we associate it with beach weather and very well we might because a lot of heat waves bring joy and, and drinks. Um, 
But for the the weaker among us and the vulnerable members of our society, these are really dangerous events. So we just need to, I think, realize that as these heat waves become more severe, we are entering a more dangerous time for Northern Europe and we need to adapt and make those changes where um, maybe we would never have thought of before because, honestly, even a few years ago, forecasters were saying it was uh, really beyond the realms of possibility that we'd get to 40 in the UK. So now uh, we're there <laughs> um, and people are, people are just scrambling to... All right, we appear to have uh, lost uh, Carl Matheson there, but when I was just about to wrap up that interview, thank you, Carl, for your contribution. Uh, Gabia, uh, he mentioned there about the weather in London, you know, on our doorstep, so close to home. Uh, some uh, weather forecasters predicting it was going to be 43 degrees there tomorrow. You know, temperatures they've never experienced before. And it is funny, I saw the mayor today, the mayor of City Khan, uh, tweeting and saying, this is dangerous. Mm. This is a dangerous weather event. And they are actually getting some praise, aren't they, for issuing this red weather alert. Take this seriously. Yeah, I think there was one front page that said that the UK would be hotter than the Sahara. I mean, this is a headline that I don't think we would think we would have ever seen. Um, really, really unprecedented temperatures of into 40 degrees. And you're right. I mean, these are dangerous temperatures. This is not the high 20s, maybe low 30s, where you have to put maybe a wet towel around your neck and just maybe avoid the sun a little bit, make sure to slather on the factor, factor 50. You have to really make sure to stay at home to have any sort of a fan, the air conditioning on, and to avoid literally going outside because this is potentially be life-threatening, especially, and I think, in, in fairness, I think Carl made some really good points there, especially if you are, you know, elderly or maybe if you're more frail, um, that even, you know, high 20s, low 30s, you can't handle the temperatures here. Of course, in fairness to Medair, and, you know, they have come out, they've also warned people to, I think, today, to maybe stay indoors, you know, up until 3 o'clock. That's kind of when we see the worst of the heat. And tomorrow, of course, we're going to see those temperatures spiral um, even more. And, and, of course, they're advising the same again. And, and of course, people are being told to might look out for their pets and so on. And making it very clear, um, Carol, there, that every scientist is relating this back to climate change. Yeah, look, it's, it's not a big mystery as to where this is coming from. I mean you know, it's it's a result of decades and decades and decades of, of, of governments failing to act on climate change. We know that, of course, our own government is now battling to put in these sectoral targets. But, you know, we see these extreme weather events. And this is just one example. And I think when we see things like extreme heat waves or, for example, extreme winters, of course, extreme temperatures are on doorstep. That's what makes people realise this is what climate change looks like. Yeah, and yet, John, I'm so conscious that there'll be people watching this evening who've said, hold on a second... You know, we've had a rubbish summer here and we have three days now where people can sit in their back gardens, you know, kids can go to the beach, take out the paddling peel. Are we actually catastrophizing something that's really quite minor in Ireland? Well, I think it's true what Carl was saying about uh, heatwaves being a silent killer. And we know that uh, in 2020, for example, 2,500 people died in the UK from, from the heat wave there. We know from our own work here in Ireland that um, we've had heat waves in the past. We, we looked at five heat waves um, historically and we found 300 excess deaths within Ireland itself. So, so we are looking at a very serious... Uh, and, and those were all for temperatures well below what we're experiencing today. So what we're seeing today is a taster of what's to come. Um, in, in the UK, as, as Gabby was saying, 40 degrees, well, that was thought to be a once-in-a-thousand-year event in the 1970s. It's now a once-in-an-86-year event. And that kind of scaling down <clears throat> is, is, is happening. In the case of, of our own climate change, we now can model, of course, 
climate with and without carbon dioxide for hundreds of runs. And the figures that come up for the probability increases are really alarming. It, it, it's between 10 and 100 times more likely that we'll have an event like today going into the future. Because there was a lot of chatter up. online today, people saying, hold on a second, historically we have, as you just pointed out, these temperatures. You know, we have experienced them here before, so how is this any different? Well, we have uh, not experienced today uh, for 135 years, and that says something. Uh, and if you take, for example, the temperature changes that have been occurring in England, as, Gary, as Gabby was saying, the warmest day in England has been increasing by one degree every decade. So it's now, since the 1960s, it's now six degrees warmer than it would have been on the hottest summer day in the 1960s. And we in Ireland are warming as well. We, we're a well, mid climate change country. manifests itself here in high temperatures. Do you it'll think it'll summer high temperatures? In, in extreme temperatures. Uh, our big concern, of course, here will be in terms of rainfall changes in winter and floods, which will cost us a lot. But it will manifest itself in terms of a lot of things like uh, new pests and diseases, a need to change our agricultural system, uh, a need to change our insulation system, even our architecture. The end of glass fronted office blocks may well be something we have to think seriously about. About who are Dermot Bannon glass extensions, <coughs> that type of thing in our homes? I think so. I think we have to learn from our colleagues on the continent how they cope with heat and adjust ourselves, adapt ourselves uh, accordingly with maybe smaller windows, stone-built buildings, but away from these uh, glass houses uh, that, that are really so hot in a day like today. But it's quite clear, you know, we're on the track we're, we're warming according to the global average. Um, we're going to experience those extremes and it's the price we will be paying for our inability to tackle climate change. Uh, Barry, let's just talk very practically. Uh, I know that's not the situation that we have here in Ireland. We're not experiencing what they are in the UK with that 43 degrees. But, you know, is government ready for something like that if it were to happen in this country? Is it actually even on your radar at all? Well, it's, uh, well, I'm not part of the government, but it is on the radar, definitely. And it, today, what's as important is that people understand the effect of this weather. But I agree. First of all, there's no doubt that this is caused by climate change. There's also no doubt that it is going to happen more and more often. So this is a problem that is coming down the road. There is a plan in place to deal with emissions in this country, and we've signed up to that. We need to make sure that's that effect is given to that and we make the changes that need to be made and they need to be made by everyone not just the government um, so we need to, to take those steps to make sure that we mitigate to the greatest extent possible however late it might be those problems because uh, I'm just really conscious uh, that Carl who we heard from earlier also tweeted today that addressing this is going to require deep political commitments and it's going to require leadership uh, he called an, that will lead an economic revolution do we have that kind of leadership in any political party in this country, Jennifer? Um, well, I'm, what we've seen over the last number of weeks, months and indeed years when it comes to the issue of, of climate change and biodiversity loss is a lack of leadership in, in this country. Uh, we see wrangling at the moment over the sectoral targets. No political party other than the Social Democrats have actually come out and said that we need to be hitting the top uh, level of each target for each sector um, and even within the government themselves they're not clear on exactly what they want to do and what they expect from the different sectors particularly uh, obviously agriculture so I would say that actually the leadership isn't there from government um, and we need the leadership from government because without that leadership and the political will it's going to be very difficult to drive uh, the changes that we need it is going to be very challenging for every sector to meet these targets but unless the political leadership is there it's going to be near impossible and the target that you're talking about for agriculture is a 30% cut 
in emissions. It's 30% cut. So each sector has, uh, there's been a range of cuts that have been, um, uh, you know, uh, allocated to them. Um, and unless each sector meets the top end of that range, we will not meet the 51% reduction that is required of us um, under the, the Climate Act. Um, so, you know, the question at the moment that's been discussed is, well, you know, does agriculture, do they need to meet the top end of that? And the Social Democrats are very clear that yes, they absolutely do, because each sector needs right. to meet the top end of their target. Tim, agriculture needs to reach the top end of the target, which is a 30% cut for agriculture, the biggest emitter um, of greenhouse gases in this country. Yeah, look, Kira, obviously that, that's a massive challenge. And, you know, looking at what we see on, on television screens here tonight, you know, we acknowledge you know, there is a concern around climate change and we've always said that. You know, I think that's important to say at the start. And, you know, the world has evolved over years and you know, climate has changed and will change again. But look, I think... You, your, your first question there you know, was around leadership and you know, what we are seeing at the moment, we're seeing different voices coming from government and you know, that is a concern for me. I mean, we have Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael saying one thing and the Green Party saying something else. And what I would say is, you know, we look at it and you know, we have an independent report that was commissioned by KPMG and you know, if we're to strive for a 30% reduction in emissions at the moment, like, this will be devastating for this sector up and down the country, you know. So just to be clear, the, 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 you're the, the, saying the, agriculture in this country yeah. cannot achieve 30% cut in emissions without devastating consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I don't know, I'm very concerned with uh, Minister Ryan coming out and say, stating that we have to reach a target of 30% immediately. So, and if we're to do that, that's fine. If we want to devastate an industry you know, that has produced top quality food here in Ireland, and you know, we all know the arguments around it, if we don't produce it here in Ireland, well, then it will be produced in a less efficient country. But what is a realistic target then yeah, the, for we're, agriculture? Yeah, what we're working on at the moment is, like, there was a range between 22 and 30%, and we're working on... Uh, 22%. And, and the reason I say that to you is we understand we have to do more, but you know, we need to look in the round at what's happening here. You know, there's a lot and do you of... feel you can reach the 22% cut without touching the national herd? I, I do, but it's a huge challenge. It's a massive challenge, and this will be a massive challenge to our, to our members. And, and, and Kira, look, I've explained this up and down the country to our members. Our members are coming on board with us. They will strive to achieve a reduction of 22%, but there is a huge cost associated with this. But we All need right. to... I just want did. to get in, John. John, is it possible for agriculture <coughs> to even hit those 22% emissions cut without touching the national heritage, do you think? I don't think so. I mean, I think we've heard these kinds of aspirational comments for 10 years, but agricultural emissions have continued to increase. Now, the, the, the question of cost is crucial here because uh, if you only go for 22%, you're imposing huge costs on the rest of society. We have 135,000 really good farmers in Ireland. We have 1.17 million households who, if we only stay at 22%, will be forced to incur a 60 or 70% loss in emissions. To, we're not talking so, about so targets ordinary anymore. individuals will have to pick up we will have the shortfall to pick up. And here. An estimate from, from the modelling done in Cork, for example, is that if that extra 
weight that agriculture is going to pass on to the rest of society is borne by the energy industry, we're looking at something like €5,000 per household in Ireland to make up the difference. So All right, as well as a marginal cost in agriculture, there's a marginal cost for the rest of society which is not properly counted. All right, just let you back in there, Tim. Yeah, Kira, look, I'm very concerned, John, about the €5,000. And, you know, we're all householders and, and that would be a cost to us all. But, like, we have strived to see where the calculation has come from around this 5,000 and I failed to do so or our people have failed to do so today. John, do those calculations not exist? They come from um, the modelling done by Professor O'Gallagher in Cork which is, is used as input to the Climate Change Advisory Council. The value is actually All 10 right. billion extra money that has to be found. Jennifer? Look, I can understand the fears within the agricultural community. I think over years, government policy has driven them, driven them into a very intensive uh, means of, of agriculture. And I think what's really important is that the government and the state work with farmers to make sure that they can actually meet the, the, the changes in the but targets. But do you feel herd numbers will have to be cut? I think it's unrealistic to think that they won't be, to be honest. 37% um, uh, of greenhouse emissions come from the agriculture sector. 85% of that are actually from the boba bovine sector. So I think for the government to pretend that they're not going to have to deal with uh, with the um, the cattle side of things is, is I think it's being disrespectful right. uh, to Barry, farmers and not actually allowing them to prepare and give them yeah. time to prepare no. for Because I know you don't agree yeah. no, I, I, I with this 30% cut. To, to Do you in agriculture? What Jennifer said the outset, no government has done as much to deal with carbon emissions as this government has. That's the first thing. But I do think, I do agree that we I need to... I have to completely well, disagree. Well, well, tell me which government in this country has done more about carbon emissions than the current government. So, what I'll say, Barry, is bringing, no, bringing in an act does not actually address so our... Ask the question no, that no, I asked you. There's no, no government that has done more about it. It's Barry, a simple fact. Barry, I will say... So, no... Um, the bringing in an act does not actually reduce carbon emissions. It's the actions and the implementation of that act. And this government has failed to meet every single target. There's a two-and-a-half-year waiting list for retrofitting. Three councils last year put in EV charging points. We are not going to meet our targets because your government is incapable right. of actually implementing... The point that I was going to make is we do need to see farmers as partners in dealing with this problem. And that's tremendously important. Not as the enemy, not as people to be told they must cull the herd. The reality is... But do we also not need to be honest with... Of course we do, of course we do. But there the is also... The scale of the problem this is and a, their role in it. Look here, this is a global problem. The demand for beef in the world is not going to go down because we have fewer cattle in Ireland. What we need to be looking at is solutions that organisations like Chagask are bringing forward, changing the swords, changing the grass, changing the, life, the lifespan of a beast to reduce the, mm -hmm. the amount of carbon emissions per and kilogram And do you feel doing that will reach the 30% cut we, Yes, in but there's, there's lots of other things we can do as well, like allowing farmers to generate their own electricity in a much more effective way. There's a whole sw suite of measures that can be put in place to help farmers to meet that. Talking about culling the herd at this point, I think, is wasteful and myopic. There are other the things Green that Party can be done. Ryan, Green actually. Party leader Raymond Ryan was on the radio yesterday and said was, very clearly that, I don't agree with you know, that you'd have to reduce the, car, the, the national herd. I mean, that's black and white. There you but go. It is, it, but, the, but the point that Even I'm making is that we, we produce the Minister some, for Agriculture, Charlie McConnell. We so produce we some of the most carbon-efficient beef in the world in this country. If we stop producing beef, that beef will then be produced in Brazil and Argentina, where it's much more carbon-intensive. So on a global yeah. scale, there's a myopia to simply say cut the number of cattle. Uh, there's, there's a real difficulty here, isn't there, um, Gabby, because this is deeply unpopular stuff to be talking about, yeah, particularly um, cutting or culling the national herd in any way. And the government parties, particularly Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, not the Greens so much, but Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, are absolutely terrified, aren't they, of doing this it's those rural and the impact TDs. on rural uh, votes. Yeah, absolutely. It's those rural TDs in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael that 
you know, are really adamant that we have to keep that when they do decide on what the target actually is, when negotiations conclude between uh, Minister Eamon Ryan and Minister mm -hmm. for Agriculture and McConnell that it is that 22% as lower as it possibly can be. But then, of course, you have the Green Party leader coming out and saying, you know, you probably will have to call the national herd. And, 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 and also that he thinks that that figure should be 30% as the biggest emitter of the agriculture Absolutely. sector should cut 30%. And if you look at the Green Party, I mean, of course, that is their bread and butter. You know, they do want to see as much of a reduction of carbon as possible. But that kind of kite flying, when a government decision has not been made, when ministers are still in negotiation, it's not very helpful. And it just motivates to put fear into yeah. the farming community, which is already, um, you know, it's looking at carbon taxes, looking at all these other... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, issues like the cost of living, for example, hitting farmers very hard. This is another thing that scares But them. isn't it true also, Tim, that, as John says, that if agriculture doesn't make the 30% cut, perhaps doesn't make even the 22% cut, that everybody else is going to have to do more to try and get to that 51% target. This is going to fall back yeah, on general society, on ordinary individuals. Yeah, I'll answer that in a second, but I just want to go back on the national herd. You know, we need to look or go back and have balance here. What we're talking about here is individual farmers, and the average herd side is 80 cows, and, you know, it's not a national herd. As we often said in the past, so the government hasn't nationalised the, the national herd. There is no such thing as a national herd. I just want to make that point. And, look, I think, you know, we want to look at the Act this act that the government introduced last year. And there's four points in that act that the government, and it clearly states in the act that they shall have regard for. And, you know, before we go making decisions that we will not be able to rewind again, you know, because if we do reduce numbers, it'll be very hard to get those numbers back up again, so, which is a huge challenge. And I, if you don't mind, I'll just quick, like the first one is the rural economy, you know, the social economic impact on the rural Ireland, which is very, very important. The second one is biogenic methane, you know, how that is treated for. And it says in the Act, you know, the distinct characteristics. And we've been asking him and Ryan what he means by that, and we haven't got a response to that yet. And obviously the carbon leakage is very, very important. 
you know, as Barry has already said, if we don't produce the food here, it will be produced in, in a country that's less carbon efficient. And you know, the fourth point is, if you look at the Paris Agreement or the Paris Accord, it clearly states, you know, you know, when you are dealing with climate change, we all accept we have to, but you cannot impact on food production. Okay. Because you know, the two things in life which are critical for all human beings is but a just, proper supply of okay. food and obviously is you know, accommodation And I accept that, well. and I accept how difficult this is going to be uh, and is for farmers. But just to go back to that point again, if agriculture only reaches the 22% cut, which is, and I think there's still questions, John, you would say about whether it's possible um, for agriculture to hit that target at the moment uh, without culling the national herd or touching the national herd, individuals, ordinary members of society are going to have to pick up the slack here, potentially by adding something like €5,000 onto everybody's energy bills between now and 2030. Yeah. Somebody uh, has to pay. Yeah, but, but the first point on that, Kira, is, and, you know, I have no evidence... To, to substantiate the 5,000 euros. I think I want to be clear on that. But, but we need to look at what we're doing here. You have an extra um, beside yeah, you telling giving yeah, you the figures. Yeah, but, but what we, more evidence do you need? But, but look, we need to look at what we're doing as well. I mean, at the moment, we need to look at what's happening with this research and the science. Already, it has been established that the system we have here in Ireland, where cattle are eating grass and converting it into yeah. either dairy produce or into beef, producing, the trials are clearly demonstrating those bovines are producing up to 30% less methane. And you know, if, we can okay. continue, well, if we can continue and get those trials peer-reviewed within two years, this will be a complete different picture. And you know, that's why we need to be All very right. careful what we're doing here. Um, there is a real difficulty here, isn't there, uh, John, because there's a real climate guilt uh, coming from you know all of those people who were, I suppose, trying to make uh, a difference, trying to make changes, but you know also trying to sort of think practically about how this is going to affect their lives, their livelihoods, their lifestyle. I think there is, and, and I think we, we do have to look at a just transition for those farmers who are impacted by this necessity. I think we should stop talking about targets because we don't have targets anymore. We have legally enforceable limits, and legally enforceable limits are what we're going to have to live with in this particular problem. Problem. As regards methane, the atmosphere doesn't differentiate between methane coming from a cow and coming from a, a gas leak, for example. So, so let's not get hung up on methane. Even if you measure it in different ways, it doesn't obviate the necessity of drastic cuts in methane if we're to meet any kind of, of limit in the future. So I think there's no way out here okay. other than just facing okay, just, the reality. Sir, just to ask but, but, Barry but, but, as, but, but, as but, the... Just care, if you don't mind, John, do you acknowledge the work that has been done by the state body, and ICBF as well, that it is credible that cows in the system we have here in Ireland can produce up to 30% less meat. I, I, do accept accept that? That, I do accept that the research sure. is showing that we can do wonderful things with cows. It's been showing it for a number of years. We haven't actually even got down to uh, spreading slurry in an efficient way. Two-thirds okay. of our farmers oh, I, still I, I, spread slurry all right. with okay. splash plate erosion. Um, when are we going to have agreement on these um, sectoral targets... So um, the goal, I suppose, by Eamon Ryan certainly is the end of the month. So, we're, of course, we're in July now, by the end of July. Um, whether or not that's actually going to happen remains to be seen. I mean, these are really hard decisions the government has to make. Very unpopular um, decision in an era of populism. And, of course, as those bilaterals go on, you know, I suppose it remains to be seen. But certainly the goal that we've heard on the record is, is about the end of the month. All right, look, I'm going to, have to leave it there. My thanks to Tim and John. The rest of my panel will be staying with us. And after the break, Ukrainian refugees are sent to Gormanston military camp while offers to host refugees never followed up.
Now, Ukrainian Central Gormanston military camp will be expected to stay no more than a week. That's according to Minister Rodrigo Gorman, as 150 Ukrainian refugees are due to arrive there tomorrow. The move comes as the City West Welcome Centre reaches full capacity. My panel of Gabia Gatavaskechia, Barry Ward and Jennifer Whitmore are still with us. Uh, Gabby, I remember interviewing uh, Rodrigo Gorman, I think in March of this year, uh, when we spoke about this, you know, tented facility out in Gormanston, and he said, highly unlikely it's going to be used. And now here we are, 150 mm -hmm. uh, arriving tomorrow. There's capacity for 360, but that's going to be exhausted like that. Well, look, like it was set up for a reason. So mm. even though maybe he, the minister hoped that it wasn't going to be used, of course, it was going to be utilised, you know, eventually... Look, this is really, I suppose we've gotten to a point now where we're being very generous, we're taking as many people as we can, and rightfully so, we're fleeing a war-torn country and they've really nowhere to turn. But the reality is, is that our housing crisis is so poor that we don't have anywhere to put them. I mean, we saw mm. refugees sleeping um, in an old terminal at Dublin Airport on the floor. You know, that's really quite unacceptable to be taking in people who are coming here, they're seeking refuge, they're fleeing in desperation, they're leaving their families behind. We've got nowhere to put them. You know, we did see accommodation pledges from, um, you know, everyday people. You know, about half of those fell through uh, between the guard vesting, the process was just way too slow, it just didn't work. Um, you know, and, and it just, we've exhausted hotels. We're seeing hotels are now saying, you know, we're so full capacity with refugees that we're not, we're not able to take in tourists that are coming down to our parts of the country. And, and we're sort of looking, and the government seems to be looking at each other, one another going, you know, we still don't really know what to do with these people that yeah, are coming Barry, in. The government really does seem to be permanently on the back foot with this. I don't agree, actually. I think that our response, both at government level and at community level, has been fantastic to the Ukrainian crisis. And in fact, Ukrainian colleagues, and we've had a number of MPs from Ukraine who came over to visit us in the Chanad a couple of weeks ago, they would say that as well. Um, I think that the difference between the crisis of, of housing and accommodating people who come here from Ukraine is a different and discrete problem for that of housing our own citizens who require permanent, long-term, secure housing. Is it not all completely interlinked? It's, it all no, comes down well, to capacity, supply and no, a lack it's of because it. No, it's, it's, it's apples and oranges because Ukrainians are not looking for long-term secure housing. They are looking for short-term housing. And the reality is that the vast majority of people who come here from Ukraine want to go home. They need to go home because they're going to have to rebuild their country when this war eventually comes to an end. But as I say... But we don't actually the, currently have those short-term spaces well, for them, is we that do. They're not ideal, the but they are short-term and accommodation will be found for those people and that is the plan. But it's important that the perfect is not the enemy of the good. And like what Gabby says is correct. It's, it's far from an ideal situation. But the, what is said to me, by, both by Ukrainians in Ukraine and people who have come here whom I've met, they would much rather be in the situation they're in here than the situation they've come from. Well, what we has need happened to make with the pledges, Jennifer? Because every time I hear a, a government minister or a TD uh, interviewed about this, they talk about, oh, the pledges, the pledges, the pledges. And yet, uh, we heard on radio earlier today, we're talking maybe two pledges a day are actually, you know, being brought to the point where refugees can move into them. That whole system appears to be quite slow, quite cumbersome and, and utterly inefficient. It, it was very slow. I think it's the fact that we are having the conversations today 
that we were having five months ago is completely unacceptable, particularly in a crisis. I think when, when it first happened, you know, obviously no country and no government could have been prepared. However, there has been five months in which to get this right. And I think what Barry is saying is wrong. Like people are sleeping on the floors of City West. They're, you know, now going into uh, tented accommodation, which is completely inappropriate. So the Although government the say that is temporary, temporary, you know, they will be in Gormanston for one week only, do you believe that? Uh, no, I don't. I hope it's the case. Um, and I think there needs to be a, a real assurance that it won't actually go on longer than that. But I mean, even you know, putting people into tented accommodation when they haven't exhausted things, modular homes, vacant homes, uh, state-owned vacant properties, um, holiday homes as well was another kite-flying exercise that the government came out with. So none of these have actually been exhausted. I think the fact that government hasn't exhausted those is, is actually negligent. Barry, negligent. Well, you mean, haven't exhausted I, I all of the options out there before um, you people in the government. All of these, all of these uh, options are being exploited. If we talk about holiday homes, for example, I know of holiday homes that are being occupied by Ukrainian people here. Um, I, I know of lots of examples of exactly what Jennifer has been talking about that's been done. Nothing happens overnight. But I would go back to the fact that the response to this has been exceptional and it's exceptionally effective. Would any of us like to see what's happening today? Well, no. I but, just, I just but want to quote, um, no, because this is, I think, quite important. It was a story in the Irish Independent today, Gabia. It was from um, the whole Chamber of Commerce. You might bring us through what... It was Patrick Hennessy. Uh, he runs a bar down there. What did he have to say ab about the situation? Yeah, so people in Eula are actually finding that their hotels are totally full with refugees and they literally don't have the space for tourists that are coming in. So, of mm. course, this time of year, we're talking about heat waves. I mean, the weather is, for the most part, fabulous for those of us that don't get too warm. And we're trying to go down the country and trying to enjoy some of it, mm. trying to, of course, boost that, you know, um, very much, very much uh, you know, under-pressure hospitality trade. Mm. And people have nowhere to stay. I totally disagree with Barry. Mm. How can you say that the housing crisis has nothing to do with mm. people that are because coming in here with nowhere to accommodate? But it's not the case. For example, well, for example I, Gabby, well, you first, couldn't put people into the hotel. I reported on the old Bagot Street Hospital that's been sitting there um, vacant for years now. And there were calls from local community, people coming out and saying, do you know what, let's get people into that, let's get these refugees in. There was a local developer who even said, if it's falling apart, I'll get my builders in and I'll, you know what, I'll pay for it just to get people in there. It's still standing, I don't think it's yeah. happened to it how many months later. And of course you can find an example like that, but let me answer the question There's to explain, let me, let me like just that, answer Gary, this hundreds. question to explain why it's different. You cannot house people, Irish people who require long-term secure housing in a hotel in Yall. You can put Ukrainian people into that hotel. That's why it's different. Oh, oh. It's apples and oranges. It's a different type of problem. Well, I just want to go back to the comments from uh, Yall. Uh, they said there's no forethought here. Hotel should have been a short-term fix. Um, they seem to be now a medium, long-term fix and there's unintended consequences for the tourism industry and it's really, really severe. Yeah, and that, that is, I, I don't dispute the difficulties that different areas around the country have because of that. It is not a medium to long-term solution. For starters... Well, it was meant to well, end in Easter, wasn't yeah, it? I think and, in, and in, it is, originally, and, and now we're talking and again, renting is, out these hotels for what period of time? Um, I don't think any of them is rent, rented for more than a few months. That's my understanding. But I mean, the point that I'm making is that these are, this is a problem that has a very specific duration, we hope. We are looking to solve it in the short term. Do you accept it has unintended consequences of for course those it businesses does. And I there? accept entirely what, what was said by the people in Yale. And I feel, I, I, just, I feel really bad for the situation they're in. There's no doubt about that. But what is the alternative? Um, the government and the Red Cross are constantly working on, for example, the commitments made. As Gabby said, some of them have fallen through for, for reasons that are beyond the government's control. We're uh, continuing plenty to of work them, on that Plenty area. of them, Barry, everybody knows at this I, stage. Uh, they, they're there, they're identified, yeah. and there just hasn't been followed through. You hear those stories on a daily I'm, basis. I'm aware uh, yeah. of, of own-door accommodation that was offered in March. 
and is still sitting empty that was repainted and ready to go and is still sitting empty. And, and there are many, many uh, uh, cases like that. Only 90 out of the 500 owned door accommodation that were offered to the government have actually been investigated. So I think, there, I think there's an issue in that there needs to be one minister in control of this and one minister who's responsible for this. I think at the moment... Well, we've seen the refugee over two agencies many. call for that in this country time and time again, yeah. Barry. Yeah, no, and, and, and of course we want to see progress on this issue. But it is not the case that they, there is not progress being made. And what is happening today with, for example, the opening of the, of the accommodation in Gormanston, that is a short-term solution to house those people until okay. those other solutions can be arrived at. It cannot hope, happen overnight. Are we and it's a little a bit disingenuous sort of... to suggest that it can. You can't it's say... Five months, well, no, sorry, it's not Jennifer, overnight, that it's in itself months. is disingenuous. It's been five months, and during that time we've accommodated nearly 40,000 people. Now, that during, is progress. That, that time, is not inaction. During that time, in only fact, 90 out of 500 of we, own door uh, we, premises have been affected. You're picking one statistic. What about the 40,000 people who have come here and have actually been accommodated? Jennifer, if you could just answer that point, because that is a fair point. 40,000 people, uh, I think Ukrainian refugees, and I think thousands of others from uh, other countries have sought and have found refuge in this country. And I think the problem is we're seeing that there are a lot of them are actually being housed in hotels who cannot actually small run proportion. their own... A small I, 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 I don't think it's a small proportion, Barry. I really don't. I think... When when you say that the response has been fantastic when it came to... I absolutely agree. It has been fantastic from our communities. I think the initial response from well, government was, was very good. I don't... No, Barry, I'm talking now. So, and, and, and I, but I don't think that the government has actually implemented Again, implementation okay. is what's important okay, just very I think the government's falling word. down on it. Are you concerned about what's going to happen next month when students suddenly start going to look for student accommodation in this country? Yeah, of course I am. But I have faith that the government is making progress on this issue and they're aware that that, that clock is ticking. And I, I know that for example, I know people, Ukrainians who are in accommodation students at the moment, there is anticipated moves for them into other accommodation. So the government is aware of that deadline and they are working on it and I have faith that they will solve that problem. All right, we're going to have to leave that there for now. My panel is staying with us and after the break, the very latest in the Tory leadership race and a leadership challenge of our own. You're very welcome back. And then there were four. The field to replace Boris Johnson has narrowed again after a vote this evening. Rishi Sunak is still the front runner. The former Chancellor ahead of Penny Mordaunt and Liz Truss. Tom Tugendhat has dropped out. Meanwhile, a debate that was due to take place on Sky News tonight has been cancelled after Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss said they wouldn't take part. Well, let's bring in GB News political editor Darren McCaffrey with the very latest. Darren, look, we expect a leadership contest to be full of pretty vigorous debates, but there's pretty scathing attacks in this one, isn't there? Yeah, it got pretty nasty last night, actually, during ITV's debate where you had... Rishi Sunak laying into Liz Truss, Liz Truss doing likewise, questioning uh, where he went to school. And clearly there's been a very vicious campaign against Penny Morsens over the last couple of days with lots of briefings in the papers. And in the end, as you say today, I think the top two candidates at least decided uh, that it wasn't sensible to go ahead with yet another debate in which the Conservative Party's dirty laundry, if you like, were on full show and the deep divisions within the party were on full show. We are going to see, though, another round of voting tomorrow. You're right in saying Rishi Sunak is the, the lead candidate. Almost certainly now will make the final two. What's really fascinating about this is, is the second place in that final two is really, really open. It could be Liz Truss, the foreign secretary. It could be Penny Morden. She somewhat stalled 
today, but remains in second place among MPs. And then there's Kelly Badnock, someone who was pretty unknown until a week ago. It is possible, unlikely, but possible that she could just do it as well. It is entirely open. We've not really seen a Conservative leadership race like this uh, at all recently, where it is unpredictable about who may well end up in that final two positions. And you mentioned Penny Mordaunt today, and I was reading a, an interview with her former boss, and she really attacked her quite personally for her commitment, her interest in the role, her integrity. It's no wonder that they've pulled out of this uh, Sky News debate tonight. They're doing each other more damage than good, aren't they? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, as someone said, the only person who'd be winning uh, these Conservative leadership debates is the Labour leader, Sakia Starmer, because, as I say, the Conservative Party are not doing themselves any favours. You're right, though, Penny Mordaunt has faced an awful lot of criticism in recent days from old colleagues. Lord Frost, for example, the old Brexit secretary, has also laid into as long, uh, uh, as well as Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the International uh, Trade Secretary, who did uh, that today. In saying that, there is a sense that we may well have reached peak Penny, if you like, uh, that maybe her campaign is not going quite as well uh, as it did do in the past. But fascinatingly, we are going to have another round tomorrow, another round on Wednesday. And as I say, frankly, at this moment in time, it is anyone's guess. The one thing we can be certain of, though, is that whoever the next Conservative leader is, and thus the next Prime Minister of the UK, it will not be another white man. Uh, it will definitely either be a woman or someone who is non-white, it could be the third female conserv Conservative leader and Prime Minister, or it could be Britain's first ever non-white politician. And so that will be a pretty historic moment again for Britain. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty hot in London here tonight. It's going to get hotter in this leadership <laughs> race, though, in the days to come. Uh, one other thing that appears to be guaranteed at this point is that nobody is going to ask uh, any potential leader about their position on the protocol. Quite incredible that you had two debates, one on Channel 4 and one on ITV News, and an issue that has dominated uh, politics in Westminster for the last couple of years was nowhere to be seen. Yeah, really interesting. It must be said, obviously, climate change wasn't mentioned in any of those debates, really, in a meaningful world. I think it was a little bit, but not really. Migration wasn't an issue either. They're quite narrow debates. Clearly, the party, and to a large degree, some of the supporters still obsessed by the dumping of Boris Johnson and trust in politics. In terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol, I mean, we know that Liz Truss, who's got the backing of most of the right wing, it seems, of the party, it would be much more likely to take a hard line on all of this in terms of the relationship with Europe, in terms of not budging and trying to get through that Brexit protocol deal through Parliament in terms of trying to change it unilaterally. Uh, Rishi Sunak, though, the Chancellor or former Chancellor, we know that in government, along with Michael Gove, he was one of the more moderate voices warning against the potential economic right. fallout of falling out with Europe. So you could see a big division, actually, and a really important division on, on whoever wins that election in terms of the position when it comes to the protocol. All right. Uh, thanks, as always, Darren. I'm sure we'll be back in touch uh, as the week uh, unplays. Thanks, as always. Um, Gabia, I mean, we talked about a potential leadership challenge here. Um, perhaps this has been blown out of all proportion, but there does seem to be disquiet and internal wranglings uh, within Fianna Fáil, doesn't there? Yeah, and if you said a sentence a year ago, you would have also been right. So it all kind of reared its head again this week, or I suppose in recent weeks, because there was that quote-unquote secret meeting held by um, 30 Fianna Fáil TDs and senators when Taoiseach Michal Martin was actually in Ukraine to discuss 
party policy, where the party was going. And now we see that some of those rebel TDs, um, for example, like Willie O'Dea, have come out and said they want to see a review of the programme for government um, as the government kind of gets to its halfway mark. And of course, why is all this happening now? Well, of course, we know that Tanish Salih Radkar is due to take over as Taoiseach in December and Micheál Martin is going to presumably take his seat as Tanishta. But of course, in the programme for government, it just says that it's the leader of Fianna Fáil and doesn't say a name. So really, it doesn't have to be Micheál Martin. And so there is some talk of, you know, I a call from John McGuinness, wasn't there, that Micheál Martin should resign? But perhaps that's no surprise coming from John McGuinness. Yes, well, so speaking to some uh, parliamentary party members privately, I mean, some of them huff and puff and, puff and roll their eyes and say, well, it's the same right. names that are acting up again. But I suppose it's interesting to see those moves within Fianna Fáil as we near that rotating Taoiseach deal. Um, speaking to some sources, they're saying that, of course, their okay. Arcola is in September. Maybe after that, that's when some of the leadership contenders may rear their head. Have you any concerns, Barry, that Leo Radker won't get a chance to be Taoiseach again in uh, December because Fianna Fáil members won't support him with Michael Martin in place? I, I don't really. Um, I'm looking forward to when Leo takes back the Taoiseach's office. He did an excellent job before, and I think he will again. Internal Fianna Fáil matters are, are matters for Fianna Fáil, but I don't think any of them should be angling for an election at this stage. Um, I think this government is actually doing a good job and I think it should be allowed to continue to do that. Uh, do you think they are angling for an election? No, I think there might be individuals within, within the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party. I don't know. They don't include me in their meetings. So, um, But I don't think any of them should be. I mean, it's, it's not the right time and there are lots of important policies that need to come to fruition and see the results of those, of those policies Okay, well. Jennifer, we just have a couple of seconds. I, I think to say that the government's doing a good job is just... It's not a position we would support. No, not with all the policy failures we all see. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to uh, my panel, to Gabia, to Barry and to Jennifer and all of our guests tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night, stay safe, take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 